Good morning, my name is Cody. I am one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. Uh, if this is your first time with us this morning, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, thank you, DJ, for leading us to that time. I know it can be, it can feel awkward um, to pray together, but I think it's something that is worth us doing. Um, I uh, was just telling somebody this morning, uh, my mom said that one of the main things that helped her grow as a Christian uh, was being forced to pray uh, out loud with other people. Um, and so not that we're forcing anybody to do anything, uh, but it is a good thing for us to pray with one another, even if it does feel uncomfortable um, at times. So we're going to be in Genesis 4 this morning, continuing through our series through Genesis called Foundations of the Faith. Foundations of the Faith. We're taking a look to see at how our faith today is founded from the very beginning. From the very beginning. So we're going to be in Genesis 4. Today's a little bit of a heavier passage than normal. Because of that, it's going to be a little bit of a heavier sermon. Um, but I think, I believe, uh, that the Lord speaks to us through all passages of Scripture, and that this can be a helpful reminder uh, to us today. So again, we're going to be in Genesis 4 this morning. Genesis 4. Starting at verse 1, it reads, The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent, or it may say in your version, his face fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, that is God, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood that you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a, west, a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. 
Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived, and she gave birth to Enoch. And Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. Arad was born to Enoch. Enoch fathered Mahujel. Mahujel fathered Methushel. Methushel fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Adah and another Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jabal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the flute. Zillah bore Tubal Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tubal Cain's sister was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. Wise Lamech, pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over them, for Lamech it will be seventy-seven times. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Lord, we call on your name this morning. We are, we have a tendency, a natural inclination to come to your word and potentially misconstrue it or to try and duck away from it, to try and find some excuse out of it. Lord, I ask that you would use the text this morning as a mirror into our lives. Help us to see how we fall short, Lord. Even more so, Lord, help us to see how your grace continues to meet us in each and every moment in our lives. Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me. Lord, I know that I am a mere human. Lord, and to speak on behalf of you uh, is a scary task. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do so. Lord, that it would not be my words, but yours. Ask that you would, uh, Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged, Lord. And continue to shape us so we can reflect to Jesus all the more. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, said something a few years ago that stuck with me. While talking about recognizing the futility of sin in our lives and how it never comes through on what it promises, and in recognizing that God is the only one who can satisfy, he noted that it is people in the middle class who are often in the most danger of not seeing an idol for what it is or not seeing sin for what it is. He pointed out that the middle class often doesn't hit the lowest of the low, where they have nothing else but God, and they can see how God can satisfy like no one or nothing else. They just don't hit that point. He also pointed out that the middle class can never gain enough wealth to fully realize just how empty money is and how it does not come through on its promises to fulfill you. Instead, We are stuck in this bubble in the middle where we don't ever hit the floor with full force, but we don't ever hit the sky with full force either to realize futility on both sides. 
as a, as a member of the middle class myself, I think that he's on to something. It's not to say that life never gets hard for us in the middle class. It definitely does. I've had my fair share of sleepless nights, and I'm pretty sure that most of you have been through a lot worse than I have. Instead, he's, he's getting at the fact that we can sometimes be stuck on an endless treadmill, living the Christian life half-heartedly, and never fully realizing the treasures that await us with wholehearted devotion to Jesus. And so this morning, this text is a stark reminder that half-heartedness is a dangerous place to be. We're going to see how half-heartedness devolves into deeper and deeper sin and further and further separation from God. We are also going to see how God often pours out His grace and how grace takes on many different forms in our life. And so we'll look at three characteristics of sin as it progressively gets worse and see the presence of God, see His grace in each of those characteristics. So as we jump in, the main idea of the text this morning is this. Understanding the nature of sin's power and its effects. Give yourselves fully to God who continually gives grace. Say it again. Understanding the nature of sin's power and its effects. Give yourselves fully to God who continually gives grace. So first, we see that sin begins with misplaced priorities and a half-hearted devotion. Sin begins with misplaced priorities and a half-hearted devotion. Now the, the passage actually starts on a high note. If you're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, you may have a really dark view of it. And it does get dark quickly, but it starts on a high note. Last week as the passage came to a close, we noted the faith that Adam showed in naming his wife Eve. It was a response to God's grace and that God allowed them to live and promised that he would give them children. And this week's passage starts right up with God coming through on that promise. It reads that the man was intimate with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. Even though Adam and Eve had severed their relationship from God, their true worship of Him, He responds with grace and they respond with faith. Eve knows that it is from Yahweh that she has been given a child. It's a moment of celebration and joy in the Lord and who He is and Him being gracious and loving even after Adam and Eve's rebellion. So we start on a high note and it turns really quickly from there. We read that Adam and Eve bore another son, Abel. And then Abel became a shepherd, and Cain worked the ground. And then as we come to verse 3, we read that in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. Now again, if, if you're familiar with this story, potentially the VeggieTales version of it, you might immediately think that this offering is inherently bad. That there is something that is absolutely, totally wrong with it. But go back with me for a moment and just read that verse alone. It says, In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. 
As we read that again, is there really anything on that sentence alone that's wrong with his offering? No, in fact, it seems like, it seems like a good thing. Cain decided to take some of his earnings, something that he worked for, and offer them to the Lord. But keep reading. It tells us that Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock, and their fat portions. And it says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. How did, how did we get there? What, what happened? How did we end up with both Cain and Abel presenting a sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord only having regard for Abel's? If you notice with me the description about Abel's offering, it says that he presented an offering. So far, we're on par with what Cain presented. But notice how Moses describes Abel's offering. It says that it was some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, that's different. That's different. For Cain, it just said some of the land's produce. But now, it's like Moses goes out of his way just to show us how much better Abel's offering was than Cain's. And so what does that mean for, for Cain's offering? Well, the text does want us to see that Cain did indeed offer a sacrifice to God. Like, I don't want to take that away from him. He really did offer a sacrifice to God. The text wants to make clear that Cain did not offer up the best of what he had. Instead, we can infer that he merely offered up just a random portion of his earnings. He did not offer the first of what he received, like Abel did with the firstborn, nor the best part of what he received, like Abel did with the fat portions. And this is important because on the surface, if you just stopped there, it could seem like maybe Cain just made a mistake. Maybe he just didn't offer the sacrifice in the right way. But that's not what's happening here. Instead, the description shows us that for Abel, the sacrifice was a priority in his life. He gave the first and he gave the best. It was a priority. But for Cain, it was just a necessity. It was just something that he had to do, and therefore he just offered up some of what he had. This is important for us because on the surface... Uh, sorry, I lost my place there. Uh, this is important for us because it shows that a sacrifice was not just misplaced or that it wasn't a good deed done in the wrong way. Instead, it was a tree that sprouted from a heart with the wrong priorities. You see, you, you prioritize something when you give it your best or look to it before you look to anything else. You can tell that something is no longer a priority when we no longer give it our time or our efforts. You can see this happen in marriages, right? A common thing said to marriage counselors is that one spouse no longer feels like the priority of the other spouse. And how do they come to that conclusion? It's often because their spouse no longer carves out time to be with them or does not do anything to honor their spouse or no longer gives them their best. They just get the leftovers of their attention and their energy. And that's what's happening with Cain here. We're seeing that it's not just a problem in itself. The sacrifice is not just a problem, but it's a symptom of a deeper problem. By not giving the Lord his best or his first, 
Cain is showing that worshiping God is just a routine part of his life. It's not the priority of his life. He's not fully devoted to God. Instead, he just feels like he's bound to do this. In other words, he is spiritually on the fence. He has a half-hearted faith. And that comes out in a half-hearted worship of God. This is important for us to recognize because for the people of God, we don't often struggle with an outright conscious rebellion of God. I don't think that you would be here this morning if that was the case. Instead, sin often begins to get a grip on our lives when our priorities begin to be subconsciously rearranged and we begin to put ourselves at the top. Again, we we may not even be conscious of it, but it, it does show in how we live our life. Just like our body gives us symptoms to show that we have a deeper inner problem, our lives show clearly what is going on in the inner workings of our heart and of our mind. And so we need to be constantly evaluating our lives so that we can see what our hearts are prioritizing. However, for us, In this room, we face a particular difficulty because we live in the U.S. where the norm, honestly, is not wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Instead, the norm is a Christianity that's convenient, that fits perfectly into our lives. It can be hard to see where you've gone wrong when you look up and all the other Christians that you know are doing the same things. Cain was able to see which sacrifice God regarded. We don't necessarily have that luxury. And so, in an effort to help us think through this, I have a quick list of potential symptoms of a misprioritized heart. This is not meant to bash you over the head. It's not meant to tell you that you're not doing enough. Trust me, I know what it feels like to feel like you're on a perpetual treadmill and that you cannot keep up. Instead, I I just want it to serve as a healthy evaluation of our lives as we seek to live a life devoted to God. Sorry, I I forgot to put them on the screen, so I'll read through them slowly. So here are a few potential symptoms of a misprioritized life. We begin to see Christian activities, like Cain did, as a chore and not as something enjoyable. We begin to just check off the list and see these activities as tasks to be completed. So that's one. We begin to see Christian activities as a chore. Another one, and I want to try and give some nuance to this, is that our calendars are no longer shaped with intentionality. Instead, we're just driven by whatever is out there. Maybe personal, maybe familial, or something else. But our calendars are not shaped with intentionality. Third, we, we pick and choose how we want to obey Jesus. We may not feel comfortable doing certain things in the Christian life. And so, instead of slowly trying to work our way to get to doing those things, we just avoid them altogether. Fourth, there's a particular sin that we just can't seem to fight. And it's become a routine part of our lives. And fifth, when we compare our lives with those around us who aren't Christians there really seems to be no difference in our life. So again, that's just five. There's 
plenty more that are out there. Those are just five that came to mind. It's not, again, meant to be a guilt trip at all. Because, again, I struggle with the things that are on this list. Instead, as we see that Cain's life was defined by misplaced priorities, it's an appropriate response. It's actually in our best interest to examine our lives to see where our priorities are and to ask for God's help as we seek to have the right priorities. And we see next why self-evaluation from the beginning is incredibly important. Look at Cain's reaction to God's judgment of his sacrifice in the back half of verse 5. It says that Cain was furious and he looked despondent. He's angry. He's, he's not anger, angry at himself. That would have been an appropriate response. He could have gotten upset at his own misplaced priorities and sought the Lord's help. That's not what's going on here. As we read through the rest of it, we realize that Cain wasn't angry at himself. He's angry at either Abel or God or potentially both. The key here is that he does not respond in repentance, but in a defensive posture. He seems to feel that he has been wronged. What began as mere half-heartedness, as halfway being devoted to God, is now devolved into being mad at those who have done good. He's digging his heels in further. His view of the world is now warped inward. Sin has begun a downward spiral within Cain's life. But just as God did with Adam and Eve, he shows Cain grace. Now, we can often think of grace as a response to sin. We've sinned, so now God shows us grace, forgives us, and empowers us to try to overcome that sin. But here we see that sin actually comes before, or sorry, grace actually comes before sin as well. Here it comes in the form of a warning. Just as God warned Eve and Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God warns Cain here what could happen to him if he lets sin run its course. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God's grace in this moment is, is to not wipe Cain, wipe Cain out. Right? He could have done so if you felt like it. Instead, God gives grace by giving Cain a stark picture of what lies before him. He tells him there are only two paths here, not three. You can do what is right, prioritizing the Lord, or you can be consumed by sin. And look at how God describes sin. It's not something that you merely dip your toe into. Instead, we almost get the picture of a, a lion stalking its prey, ready to pounce and feast on its victim. The idea here is that sin will totally consume Cain if he does not heed God's warning. So again, what started out as half-heartedness now seems to be leading down a path towards total devotion away from God and towards sin. It turns out there's actually no such thing as half-hearted devotion. There's no such thing as spiritually sitting on the fence. Instead, anything that we might see as a spiritual neutral is actually a negative that will devolve further and further in our life. Just look at how it run its, runs its course in Cain's life. 
In verse 8, the very next verse after God's warning, there's no space, no pause. We read, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Boom. Just like that. How do we even get here? How do we get to verse 8, killing his brother? We may not see it happen in the same way in our life, but it will run its course. Once indifference or half-heartedness gets a foothold in your life, it will do everything that it can to consume you. It most likely will not come out in killing someone, but it can quickly devolve into a heart that's cold towards God, that becomes callous towards the effects of sin in our life, and opens up the door for us to simply walk out the back door, away from our faith, and to start living a life separated from God. This is why Hebrews 4, later on in the Bible, calls us not to harden our hearts, because it says that once your heart has been hardened, a life apart from God is the only path forward. And so, to begin, we see that, a, that sin is a matter of misplaced priorities, which comes out in our lives as half-hearted devotion at first, but that devolves into a life separated from God or an outright rebellion from Him. Second, we see that sin has consequences that produce despair. Sin has consequences that produce despair. This section begins eerily similar to our passage last week. Just like Adam and Eve, Cain has committed a sin, even though God specifically warned him not to, and has told him what will happen if he does the sin. And take a look at verse 9. It says, Then the Lord God said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? It's similar to when he walks into the garden and says, Where are you? To Adam and Eve. Now, how did Adam respond to God when asked if he ate from the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil? Adam came up with some excuses. He tried to shift the blame, but eventually he confessed to God what he had done. But notice with me how Cain responds. He says, I, I don't know. Almost indignantly, I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's guardian? Am I my brother's keeper? Cain doesn't excuse away before admitting. He just outright denies his wrongdoing. Now think about where this particular passage lies in the grand scheme of human history. From what we can gather, from the, from the word, Cain's the third human to ever exist. Just, just third. Adam, Eve, Cain. The first sin was committed by his parents, and even then it took the serpent convincing Eve, and then Eve telling Adam, we're only a few years later. I don't know how many years, but it can't have been that many. And look at how sin has grown in the course of humanity. This is part of what Moses wants us to see here. This is part of why he's writing this. Sin is not just a footnote in the grand narrative of human history. It's a defining part of the plot. and grows with more and more power as it tries to undo the good that God has done. It devolves quickly. The first recorded sin was simply eating something that they weren't supposed to eat. Now it's taking the very breath of life away from a human being. You guys remember the picture that we got of God stooping down 
scooping up dirt and breathing his own breath into it. Cain comes here and just takes that away, tears it to shreds. And even though he denies doing this, God knows what happened. He cries out, what have you done? In the same way that he asked Eve, do you have any idea what you've just done? He knows exactly what Cain has done, but Cain, for some reason, does not realize the full weight of his sin. He's just simply moving on with life. And it is only when God explains Cain's consequences that he feels the weight of anything at all. Verse 11, God says, So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your, bro- your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. The very thing that Cain did, the thing that brought him sustenance, how he made his living, the thing that provided for him, has been taken away. He can no longer work the ground and he can no longer be in community with those that he loves. Just as Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, banished from God's presence, Cain is banished from God's people. And look at how he responds. I think he responds appropriately. My my punishment is too great to bear. Here's the thing about sin. Since it begins as half-heartedness towards God and devolves into callousness towards God, we can lose sight of what sin is. Every guitar player knows how calluses work. At first, it's painful to play. It hurts your fingers as you grip the guitar strings. You're fully aware of what's happening as you shift from chord to chord. But over time, you build up calluses so that you no longer feel what you, what you once felt, and you can play without even thinking about it. It's the same way with sin. At first, we may feel conviction. We may hurt over the pain that we are causing God or calling others. When it's moved from indifference to real, legitimate sin that we are seeing in our lives, we often recognize it and feel the weight of it. But over time, as we give into sin more and more, we feel the weight of it less and less. We forget about what it does and how it hurts. But then when we come face to face with the reality of our consequences, Cain's response is the appropriate response for us to take. The, the judgment of God, the reality of hell, of separation from him, of the pain and sting of death feel like too much. We, we can't take on the full wrath of God. And so it's appropriate to respond in despair. And yet, even in the face of our punishment, and in the feelings of despair that we feel when we come to grips with our sin and its consequences, God pours out grace. For Cain, it takes the form of protection. God tells Cain that he will place a mark on him so that he will not be killed. And for us, God protects us by continuing to give us life. He protects us by continuing to give us an opportunity to turn from him. It is God's grace that we are not pushed away forever, but that he continues to give us life and to call us to himself. God's grace is working in all aspects of our life. And so again, we see that sin starts as half-hearted devotion. We see that sin's consequences cause despair in our life. 
And finally, we see that sin devolves into deeper sin. When we read through the passage, you may have, when we got to verse 17, wondered, what in the world is this? Like, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it shows us that even with God's protection, we see that the destiny of mankind is only to fall further and further into sin. If you think about Genesis 3.15, the crux of of last, last week's passage, the hinge point, God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, at first, we could read that as just two physical lineages. Right, anybody in here hate snakes? Right, I've got hostility towards snakes at all times. So we could think it may be that, but that is not what God was saying. He was saying that there would be two lineages now, the line of the serpent and the line of the woman, yes, but it was a spiritual line, not a physical line. There would be a line of people that would be defined by being God's people. That'd be the line of the woman. And then there would be a line of people that would find themselves opposed to God and his plans. And that's the line of the serpent. And here, we see that even though Cain was the physical offspring of the woman, he's the spiritual offspring of the serpent. This is not just evidenced by his life, but continues to be evidenced by the life of his descendants. So that's what's going on here in this passage. While we read of Cain's lineage, we come to Lamech, or Lamech, who makes a weird claim. In verse 23, he says to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech, it will be 77 times. Cain's sin is only devolved through his lineage as evidenced by two things. First, Cain's married to two women. That is not at all how God set it up. It's clear disobedience of God's commands. We read at the end of last week, or at the end of chapter two, that God made a man and a woman to be together for life. And now he's gone outside of that and has gone after what he desires, not within the realms of God's commands, but outside of that. So first, he's simply taken the institution of marriage and has done whatever he feels like doing with it. And second, his action of killing does not seem to be out of defense or even out of anger, as Cain's was. In fact, it actually seems to be a means of showing off. One commentator noted it as a demonstration of strength for the benefit of the women. So in the same way that A macho man might sit down and start doing some push-ups randomly or something like that, thinking that he can show off. Lamech killed a guy. In other words, he simply killed out of selfish desire. The course of sin's devolvement has just continued further and further down. The serpent's line is continuing on a downward spiral. And if we're left with that, if the passage ended there, then the human race is doomed. The effects of sin have rapidly increased, so much so that we're only six generations away from the first humans, the first sinners, and the institution of marriage has been defaced, and the sacredness of life has been totally devalued. Sin has begun to run its course in the world, and its only path is down. But God shows grace yet again, and this time it's through provision. 
So far it's come through a warning, through protection, and now it comes through provision. In verse 25, we read that Adam was intimate with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. God redeems his people through giving them a son. Out of the sorrow of Adam and Eve's loss comes another son. This son is a means of redemption for Adam and Eve, a means of hope that God has not forgotten them. It is through this son that the spiritual line of the woman continues. And it is through this son that we see the son of God come to the world. It's through the line of Seth through which Jesus comes. We've seen that grace takes the form of warning, of protection, and of provision. And ultimately, all three of these things find their home, their place in Jesus. Jesus is the penultimate form of grace. Grace is God himself. It is in Jesus that we're warned of our sinful condition and misplaced priorities. The Gospel of Mark opens by telling us the message of Jesus. He says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. He tells us in John 5 that he's the judge and that judgment is coming. In John 14, he tells us that he's the only way to salvation. As he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He has warned warned us of what is to come, and just as God the Father beckons Cain to do what is right, because sin is waiting, Jesus calls us to place our trust in Him. It is in Jesus that we are protected as well, protected from the wrath that is ours, wrath that we've earned. Cain had judgment coming to him that he deserved, and apart from Christ, we're in the same situation. Our punishment is too great to bear. There's no way that we could take on the wrath of God. But in Jesus, we we find protection. As he does not simply spare us wrath and pain, but he takes on wrath and pain in our place. And then just as a mark was placed on Cain, Jesus places his righteousness on us so that we are spared. And it is in Jesus that we find provision. Jesus was sent by the Father, And Jesus now sends us the Spirit who gives us the power to overcome sin and to have the right priorities. Jesus is the one who has secured our future with God in the new heavens and the new earth and who helps us to walk with God and enjoy Him now. He provides for all of our needs as we read in Matthew 5 as He cares for each aspect of us. We read in 1 Peter 5 that we can cast all of our cares on Him because He cares for us. And so if you have never done so, I urge you today to give yourself fully to Jesus. It is in Jesus that true life awaits, that joy, hope, and peace are found. I don't know what it is that you've built your life around, but it's not meant to sustain you. It's not meant to give you ultimate joy or true satisfaction. It will crumble Instead, ask Jesus to be the center of your universe, to change your heart to love him. Those who seek will find. I urge you today to genuinely ask Jesus to redeem you from sin, from your selfish desires, and to turn your heart, your life, towards him.
And for those of you in the room who are Christians, who have believed, my call is the same. Pray today that Jesus would have the Spirit to help you see where your priorities lie and to continue to help you to orient your life around Him. The, the paradox of the Christian life is that through focusing on something outside of you, you will find true inner satisfaction. As you give yourselves fully to Jesus, you will find that it is there is where true joy awaits. Lord, we ask you this morning for your help as we seek to give ourselves fully to you. It is hard not to live a half-hearted life. Things competing for our attention. There's so many things competing to be a priority in our life. And so I ask that you would help us, Spirit, to prioritize you. Help us to be honest with ourselves about where we're at. Lord, if we're living the half-in, half-out life, if we're spiritually on the fence, then help us to turn and to continue to chase you. For you are where treasures abound. Lord, remind us, when we, get, when we get caught up thinking that we can find satisfaction in something else, that we can only find satisfaction in you. Lord, as we are entangled with sin, Lord, as we continue to fight it, I pray that you would give us power to overcome it. Grace for each day. Lord, that you would continue to put people in our life to warn us, that your spirit would warn us, Father. And Lord, I ask that you would help, uh, or help us to continue to rest in your, in your provision and your protection. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.